What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Oreo Ohayan is the CEO of Zengo. In this conversation, we discuss digital wallets, security, Facebook's Libra, and how wallets may support various assets in the future. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Skirt, skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, motherfucking mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at Crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit Crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry. Your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to CoinMine.com. You buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it. It shows up at your doorstep. You pull it out of the box. You plug it in. Connect to your Wi-Fi. Five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide. And then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just your update in your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com. Tell them Pomp set you and thank me later. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I am here with Oriel. Uh, dude, thank you so much for doing this. I'm super excited to uh, talk about uh, a whole bunch of stuff that you guys are doing with digital wallets and key management, given uh, kind of the world we're in right now. So thank you. Bang, bang. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So let's just jump right in. Uh, maybe give us an update on or, or an overview of your background um, and how you got into crypto. And then we can talk more about what you're doing now. So, so I don't have a great story. I, I know like all your guests are have like super stories about how they got into crypto. Uh, mine is extremely boring. I've been in tech for the past 20 years. I've been bounce, bouncing back and forth between building companies and investing in companies. Uh, so I've been an entrepreneur. I was in venture capital for years. I created a venture fund. And uh, in my last company, I was exposed to uh, a lot of mobile apps. I built myself mobile apps. And uh, I, I kind of suffered from the point of failure that, you know, you have when you are depending on the platform and you, you have depending, your life is depending on Apple and Google. And when I discovered via podcast, by the way, which was uh, with Nick Sabo and I think Nick, Nick Ferris about a couple of years ago uh, about Ethereum, um, it opened my eyes, was the first time I heard about apps that could not be stopped. And it got me extremely curious. And, you know, I started to learn about it. I started to listen to more podcasts, including yours, by the way. And, um, you know, I, I decided it was extremely, you know, it was groundbreaking and I wanted to spend the rest of my career into it. So I started to write about it. I wrote blog posts, which started to become popular. I started to meet a lot of people. I started to invest in the space. And at some point I realized there was a problem I wanted to solve for myself. And, and the problem was the problem of digital wallet, which I found extremely hard actually until today to use. And, uh, you know, that even generated lots of funds for me <laughs> at some point. So I decided that it was an important problem to solve. And I paused there and I uh, started to think about an idea and built a team around that. So that's basically the accelerated version about uh, what I did until now. Uh, just also a quick pause. I, I also were in the content space. I was one of the early writers of the TechCrunch team in the early days. And I uh, built a, a blog for them and uh, eventually we sold it to IOM. So I was also part of that, uh, of that story. Got it. And so coming out of you know what I'll consider a more traditional tech background, very similar to... Uh, to me, how do you think about um, where crypto intersects, right? Is it something that Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency is separate uh, in order to remain separate and people kind of have to make a choice? Or do you see much more of the, the blending of the line or, or, or a, a gray area um, where, where they become um, you know, connected and, and eventually just they can't be disconnected? 
Well, once I started to understand what it is, it was so obvious for me that it was a natural evolution of everything. If you understand that everything is going to get digital, you know, information, commerce, then you understand that money is also going to become natively digital. I'm not talking about online banking and stuff like that. And so it took it took me a while to understand that. And, you know, I've been an early adopter of mostly everything, except sadly of Bitcoin, although I knew about it. But when I started to understand that for me, it was just so obvious. It was a natural evolution of the, not just of the internet, it was a natural evolution of the economy. Uh, the money has to become digital. The way we transfer value had to become digital. And for that, you need a native uh, paradigm. And uh, blockchain was just so naturally fit for doing that. So once I understood that, and because I saw all these three revolutions, I saw the revolution with my own eyes, you know, of the internet, the desktop internet, the revolution of social internet and the revolution of mobile. When I realized that for me, it was pretty obvious that the train couldn't be missed and I had to be there. So it was just like a natural evolution for me. And it seems like more and more the case by the day. Got it. And so digital wallets are a huge piece of this. Um, maybe just give us like a quick 101 on what is a digital wallet and why are they so important? So uh, first, I think in the in the world of crypto and blockchains, the word wallet is not appropriate because the world wallet implies that you you have something that is stored in it, right? You have value that is stored in it, uh, physically stored in it. You know, the history of wallets, you know, you can look at in Wikipedia, is always associated to something physical. And uh, digital wallet is an abstraction of something that means that you have some kind of interface that will allow you to know what you own and will allow you to transact with it and receive and send. And so those are those interfaces have a history. Um, they've been there nearly from day one into the blockchain space uh, with Bitcoin and the interface were extremely elementary at first and very unusable and over time became more and more usable. And we've seen multiple forms of uh, wallets over time. Some are uh, custodian, meaning that uh, the service hold the funds for you and, you know, the most famous are exchanges and sometimes they get hacked. And uh, the majority of them are non-custodial, meaning they only uh, give you access to your funds via the private key that you are controlling. And there's been multiple iteration of those uh, non-custodial wallets, um, those interfaces which through the private key allows you to know what you have, uh, spend and receive funds. Um, the, the problem with those wallets, and no matter how you look at them, whether they are software, whether they are hardware, whether they are paper wallets, is that they put the burden on the user uh, to manage his own security, which is something the human being is not used to. And so a big problem starts from that point. So we can talk about that. But for me, digital wallet is just an interface. And not just for me, I think this is what it is. It's just an interface for you to know what you own. Um, do things with it, interact with different type of protocols that are connected to the to the blockchains, and then from there, um, you know, grow your wealth. Got it. And, and then, as you look at these digital wallets, the, there's a lot of advantages and disadvantages. When, when you describe it to somebody outside of crypto, right? Let, let's talk kind of like a traditional investor um, or somebody who's thinking about using. Uh, one of these digital wallets, how do you break down where the advantages are to the legacy system and then where those challenges are uh, with the existing tools that are out there? So the, the, the advantage is extremely simple. It's control, right? The user is in, in charge of his own uh, funds. There is no uh, way to censor them. There is no way to uh, take control of them. You are in charge of your, you become your own bank. Now that's the expression, not your keys, not your crypto. So you are, you are the boss, you are the bank. And so that gives tremendous advantages, in particular in economies where uh, there is a lot of censorship and then economies where you want to have uh, privacy. But the disadvantage of that is that you are becoming, uh, you are being required to become a security expert overnight. And that's something that has failed over and over again. And the interfaces, no matter how they are built, because they are around this, this topic of you have to manage your privacy, you have to manage your security, uh, are generating a lot of accidents, hack human errors. And that's something that most people are not used, are very nervous about. And now there is this kind of ongoing search for better user experience and a better way to deal with that. Because if this is true that uh, up until today, tens of millions of people have gone through that process, it's extremely unlikely that in the future, hundreds of millions or billions of people will know how to do that. And no matter how, how great are the user interfaces, managing a secret is extremely hard. There's a reason why hacks happen every year. 
and why accidents happen all the time. So the advantage is basically control. The disadvantage is that uh, you are uh, becoming a security expert and likely to, uh, to lose your funds more, more than in a traditional uh, system or the legacy system. Got it. And, and then as you're looking at the different wallets that are out there, right, there's custodial, non-custodial, um, and, and they have various kind of levels of, um, I don't know, I'll call it uh, sophistication, right, in, in terms of what somebody can expect and what the user experience is like. Maybe give us just kind of a state of where are we now with the, with the products that are out there, right? So we understand the advantages and disadvantages, but where are we from a state of digital currencies today? So basically, we looked at it extremely simply, and uh, we looked at it in a way, I know it's unconventional, and people will say, well, you have like, you know, hardware wallets and software wallets and paper wallets and multi-sig wallets, and we look at it in a different way. We look at wallets that have a private key and wallets that don't have a private key. And that's kind of the new paradigm that we're introducing in the market with, with Zango and, and the Killers Wallet is a wallet without private key, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But basically, the common point with all the solutions that exist today is that no matter what type of format, whether this is the hardware or software, the, the, those are meant around organization, the access to the private key. And some will be air-gapped and protected by a pin code and a dedicated hardware, and some will be protected by some sort of smart contract or a set of guardians around you that are protecting with you the private key, or some will be protected by just the device biometrics. And this is a, uh, an entire category for us. It's not like we can split it in different things. Some people will prefer this flavor. Some people, people will more, be more comfortable with, with that flavor. Right now, the best gold practice is to say, right, keep everything in a hardware wallet because it's um, likely ergot and better protected, and it's likely true. But we like it. we're looking at the market in a different way with a different angle. Uh, we're looking at that as a category which is around the management of the private key, which is a problem because there is a point of failure and there is tremendous user experience issues. Um, and I think there is a new generation of solutions that are coming up um, thanks to multi-party computation. I don't think we are alone in working in that field uh, that are around in providing solutions that are not necessarily a private key in itself and enabling all sorts of new experiences and, and security level that wasn't presented until now. Got it. And so what are you guys doing at Zengo? How, how do you kind of uh, look at your place in that world? So um, it, it came from a personal um, experience when I onboarded this industry and I tried like multiple wallets and hardware wallets, software wallets, and I, I had to go through the, you know, the tedious process of setting up a 24 password and storing it in somewhere safe, the famous sentence, keep your seed in a safe place. And I was trying to find out what that means. And until today, I couldn't find an answer. The best one I could find was put it in a, in a bank safe. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was wondering like, if the whole point is to escape the banking system, why should I put my, all my wealth back to the bank? You know, that makes no sense. And so uh, I, I saw that I was trying to, to, I was dreaming actually about a solution that was escaping that, uh, that, that step. And uh, that was enabling someone to onboard very quickly, not just to onboard, but also to guarantee that his funds would be non-custodial and recoverable no matter what. And we couldn't find a solution with typical public key crypto cryptography. Typical public key cryptography requires you to associate to it a private key. And then you can do all sorts of things with that private key. You can air gap it, you can shard it, you can do all sorts of things, but there's always a private key and it's a, a point of failure. It's, a, it's an information that if it gets compromised, meaning you lose your funds. So we look at that and we could not imagine a solution around that. So we looked at a different area of cryptography, which called uh, multi-party computation and threshold uh, signature, which basically the principle is extremely simple, is that instead of generating a private key associated to a public key, you are uh, distributing the security between uh, devices that don't know each other, that generate uh, independent mathematical operation that are never going to be exposed to each other. And together they are going to play the same role as a private key. What you do, in essence, is that you are offloading the security, which is typically on one private key to multiple devices, and by doing so, eliminating single point of failure. So that's like the first layer, distributing the security. On top of that, what we are doing at Zengo, and so I forgot to say, it, Zengo is a crypto wallet, in case it was not clear. It's a mobile app that you download on your phone, and in five seconds, you have a non-custodial wallet, which is set up and backed up. So on top of the, the cryptography, and if your questions pose me, right, but if on top of the cryptography, what we're doing is we're building a password-free experience. So it's the first time in crypto, and I think it's the first time in fintech, 
that this you can onboard a wallet, a digital wallet, with absolutely no password, nothing to write, nothing to remember, nothing to lose. Uh, I can describe the experience very quickly. You just put your email, you confirm it with a magic link, like on Slack. Uh, you enter your device with the biometrics of the device, and then we scan your face server side. It's encrypted on your device, and it allows you to get into um, into the wallet. And if you lose your phone, you can go through the same steps and recover it again. So nothing to remember. We call that a password-free experience. And then you get into your wallet. So you have two important things here. You have a wallet that is set up extremely fast, where there is no private key, and that has no password. The last advantage of it is that only you, the owner, can access your funds. Um, typically in a wallet, uh, you, if someone has your password or even your SIM card or a SIM jack or something, will access your funds and spend your money. In Zango, this is the first time a wallet is own, can only be used by the owner of the wallet because there is the biometrics that is tied to it. So that's also a kind of new approach and a little revolution in the space. So to summarize, Zango is a simple uh, uh, wallet where the security is distributed that requires no password that is tied to your biometrics so that only you can access and recover your funds. That's what Zango is. Got it. And, and so as you think about building this, right, th- there's like the key management component, there's uh, security, which is table stakes, et cetera. But how do you look at Zengo's advantage over other digital wallets? Like, like if I'm a user and I'm sitting here saying, I need a digital wallet and I've got, you know, eight, 10 different choices What's the differentiator that you feel like puts Zengo heads above uh, everybody else? So right now, Zengo is designed mostly for people who do not own yet crypto and are going to suffer from the pain on onboarding the industry. And um, that uh, we know that we see that already. The type of users we attract are people who have difficulties with the, uh, with the system. But not just. It's also users who have used existing solutions and have already lost money, uh, sometimes a lot of money, and understand the pain of what it means to manage your security and want to still have something that is non-custodial, but that offers kind of custodial-grade uh, type of experience. It's beautifully designed. It's extremely simple. There is 24-7 customer support. So it feels like there is always someone on the other line, but it's not a bank. It's not a custodian. So I think we're also attracting this type of user. And I think as we progress, as we add more services, People will realize there is even more value to add it to it. I mean, we can talk a little bit of what's coming up, but there will be element, uh, elements of guarantees and security uh, that are not yet present in, uh, in the mobile app that will give more sensation that no matter what happens, your funds are always safe. And I think this kind of peace of mind added value is something that you do not find in uh, the current solutions. You're always asking questions about what if, what is this, what is that. And I think this what this industry requires more, and that's our added value, is extreme simplicity and extreme peace of mind. And that's something that you, you realize the first second you open the app, and you realize it also when you have to recover it, because it looks extremely simple. And um, that's if you've used those solutions before, you realize that it's uh, something that is superior. Uh, so I think the added value starts here. As we grow along, and as we plug more services and we interface with more uh, with more uh, protocols, and we can you can do more things with your wallets, then you will realize that this is also a useful interface for doing all sorts of things, not just sending and receiving, and not just for onboarding and recovery. And uh, so the, the the progressive added value of the wallet will be there. There is the last one though, and I want to insist on that is the the multi asset part, right? So there are many many uh, wallets that that claim to be multi asset, but when you look into the details. They do not necessarily support multiple chains. They many times support multiple tokens in the same chain. Uh, we've built a, a solution that is blockchain agnostic, and that enables us to add a blockchain, a new blockchain, extremely fast. And uh, last week, we just announced support for Libra already, uh, although it's just been announced two weeks ago. So uh, we have the capacity to build kind of the remote control, if you want, for all the assets that you have to manage. And we're not just talking about coins, tokens, we're talking about any form of digital asset, whether this is a digital identity tomorrow, a collectible, a title of property, a security token, et cetera, et cetera, anything that can sit on the blockchain. So this kind of peace of mind of I can have anything in that world is something also that will matter. Of course, right now it's limited. We only support Bitcoin and Ethereum, and we just launch only. Uh, but I think over time, people will realize it, uh, it's, it's more and more useful. Got it. Where are we going? So as you build this, what, like where do digital wallets go? Like, what, what does that future look like in terms of how they're going to evolve? 
So, I mean, right now there's a lot of solutions in the market, and I don't think uh, there will be, you know, hundreds of wallets in the in the in the future. There will be probably less. But what's also certain is that users will not install 30 wallets for 30 different assets. Uh, that makes no sense. It's like saying, hey, here is a great TV. You are all those TV channels, and here is like 30 remote controls. Now enjoy your enjoy your show, enjoy your movies. Um, users will need remote controls. And uh, not just because they need to manage uh, all their assets in one place, but also because they need to interact with a bunch of services that are tied to their uh, to their accounts, and so they can do that. Uh, I I believe that your mobile phone will be the hardware wallet of the future. Uh, it will be the only hardware that you will need. As security enclaves will become better, uh, as the protocols provided and the APIs provided by the operating system, namely Apple and Google, will get better. I think we will not need at some point hardware wallets. Um, I do anticipate also that biometrics will become more and more prominent and will replace passwords because passwords are the, the, the mother of all nightmares uh, in, the, in security. Uh, and I think yeah, the future will look like you know, more, remote, more remote control type of experiences, uh, hard, mobile as a hardware, and uh, uh, you know, your phone is your hardware wallet, and this is what you need. Uh, you will be able to interconnect with it. And if you look at what's happening in Asia, it's already the case. You know, the phone is the wallet, right? So I think this is where the action is going to happen. It's not going to happen on the computer. It's not going to happen on a, maybe on a connected watch at some point, but it's going to happen first on the phone. And I think the future is going in that way. Got it. And, and so, you know, uh, for a long time, I've just thought that, um, that there's two core theses uh, that my partners and I have had in, in uh, crypto, which is one, uh, Bitcoin is a uh, sound money that will act as a great store of value over a long period of time. And the second was that every stock bond currency and commodity will eventually be digitized or tokenized. Um, and, and so, the digital wallet to me is like the core infrastructure for that second part of the thesis, which is the stocks, bonds, currency, and commodities getting digitized. Today, I mm-hmm. think we see most companies that are talking about this. You know, take let's use Facebook as an example. They're they're thinking of uh, digital wallets as a wallet for a currency, a, a digital currency. So they've announced Libra, uh, and then they've also announced that they're building uh, Calibra, which is a digital wallet that will support mm-hmm. Libra. Um, mm-hmm. One, let's talk about you know your thoughts on not only currencies but the stocks, the bonds, and the commodities also being tokenized or digitized and digital wallets supporting that. And then we can get into a little bit about Facebook, Libra, and Calibra. So, so my view is that any asset that can be digitized will be digitized, and I know uh, stocks and, and bonds will be one of them. But I think it will go way beyond that. Uh, our identity will be digital. Our title of property will be digital. Uh, proof of ownership of anything that is an asset will be digital. Um, artist, uh, or let's call it art, uh, and and traceability, traceability of art, and logistic traceability will be also digitized. And there is not nothing that will not be digitized at some point. It's just the sense of history. We see that already. It's already happening. And if that is the case, you need a home for those uh, uh, for those um, certificates or for those proof of. Or, for those titles and for those uh, uh, for those assets, and um, it's obvious also that it's not going to be the same interface for all those type of assets. So the best wallets will have the best interface for a certain type of assets. Uh, you know, when you store Bitcoin and you send Bitcoin, it's obviously not the same as a digital identity or a collectible. Uh, so various interfaces will be there, will matter. Right, the browser doesn't look the same if you are on an email or if you are on an e-commerce site. So it's about the same site. And here, I think it would be that. So for for us, when we think about wallets, we don't think about wallets for coins or currencies. We think about it as the browser that will enable whoever owns a digital asset to uh, to browse it, to spend it, to interact with it, to invest it, to share it, uh, to plan for it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it goes way beyond the traditional exception acceptance of you know what a wallet is and what a digital asset is and uh, we're indeed very bullish about security tokens we we, we believe this is going to happen uh, we have received grants uh, we haven't talked about the company but we received grants from from platforms that are going to be massively used for that and so we believe that this is something that's going to matter uh, i don't know if you want to jump right in into libra but that's already the first part about your question uh, on digital uh, security and bonds 
Yeah. So, so maybe just give everyone a, a quick overview uh, for those that don't know the difference between Libra and Calibra, and then we can talk about some of the nuances. So Libra is the, um, um, is the uh, uh, protocol, the, the, the decentralized currency that uh, Facebook, but not just Facebook, along with another set of uh, important members have announced a couple of weeks ago and looks like uh, a stable coin uh, or stable-ish coin um, that will be uh, launched next year. And um, that's kind of one chapter, it's kind of the protocol and uh, the rules around managing the reserve behind it. And this stablecoin is paid to a basket of uh, fiat assets. Maybe in the future it will include digital assets, but it will be pegged and it will be rather stable. And on the other side, you have a company which is a subsidiary of Facebook, which is called Calibra, which is a custodial wallet and which will be a mobile interface, at least based on the screenshots that we've seen uh, on their website, and that will enable uh, the owners of, uh, of Libra to transact with it. It will be a custodial wallet, meaning that uh, Lee Calibra will um, be the owner of the uh, private key around, uh, around uh, the Libra that you own. You will have to onboard it with a KYC. So you, unlike non-custodial wallet, you will have to prove your identity with a digital, uh, with a proof of identification government ID. And uh, uh, it looks like also Calibra is going to be baked in Facebook main properties, WhatsApp, Instagram, Messenger, et cetera, et cetera. So it's going to be probably by far the most popular digital wallet ever created to date, uh, not just in crypto, but I think in the world, like way more than PayPal or maybe, you know, the second most popular will be uh, Apple Pay or uh, in-app purchase from Apple. But I don't think it, I think it will go way beyond that because we got like a couple of billions of users already. And so uh, Calibra is that type of uh, wallet. What they uh, also have announced is a platform and a source code that developers will be able to use to also build their own wallets, right? And they are actually seem to encourage that. They want to have uh, all sorts of flavors and, and, and formats of wallets that people will be able to use. Some will be custodial, some will be non-custodial. And uh, we jumped on the race because we liked very much what we heard with uh, this project. Um, I was secretly hoping that something like that would happen when I started working on Zango. And so we immediately look at the code and we build support for uh, for Libra Test Network. Got it. What um what, what do you think the challenges are they're going to face? Well, it's obvious that the first one is going to be regulatory. Uh, yep. I think I uh, know it's coming up, and uh, I know I think it's coming up in, in a week or something like that. Uh, I'm pretty confident though that they will manage and they will be fine because when you look into the details about how the Libra Association is managed about the fact that it's not controlled by Facebook and that Facebook is only one of the voices. The fact that they're going to uh, KYC their users, the fact that the reserve is going to be audited and controlled, the fact that it's not going to be a fully decentralized a la Bitcoin kind of protocol where governments have absolutely no visibility and they don't know who to call when there is a problem happening. I think they will be fine as they learn about it. And I think, you know, this hurdle uh, will be uh, overcome. Um, I'm, I'm not worried about that. The second problem that they will have to, to face is that of adoption, not distribution, but adoption. Distribution will be solved overnight because as it's plugged to their hubs and their users, Instantly, billions of people have access to the to the wallet. But they've tried that in the past. They tried to put payments into Facebook Messenger, and uh, that was not successful. People did not really use it. So one thing is to have distribution, another to have adoption. And to have adoption, people have to understand the value of it, right? So I think there will be um, a challenge about explaining why people need to use that. And I think you know if they are targeting primarily uh, developed economies, it's going to be challenging because I don't think people will immediately understand why they need to use that instead of their native currency, unless they have a very strong economical incentive, a coupon, a discount, or something that gives them the benefit of using it. Uh, and they probably have better chance in countries where financial infrastructure is either very weak uh, or is being attacked or non-existent, right? So in the, for example, in African countries, uh, you know, mobile trans uh, transactions are controlled by financial transactions are co controlled by mobile operators, and they charge crazy fees for that. So it sounds like it's a natural fit for them, so they would have to like do some marketing to get adopted there, but the pay might be 
way less important than in other countries. So I think this war will be their probably their main two uh, challenges. And there is a third kind of wild question is how the manage the reserve will be managed and the, the peg and the stable stability of the coin will be operated uh, and the equilibrium in the system will be operated and the security of the system will be managed. Uh, but that remains to be seen. Skirt, skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right. Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal. Mother mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at Crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit Crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry. Your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com, you buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it, it shows up at your doorstep, you pull it out of the box, you plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi, five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide, and then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. And so how do you think, like one of the things that I, I keep thinking through is uh, if government step in and really apply pressure to Facebook on, on Libra, right? So uh, it just came out recently that uh, Facebook is going to not pursue their digital currency plans in India at the moment uh, because of regulation there. Uh, obviously, India has um, a very large mm-hmm. population, over a billion mm-hmm. people. I think on Facebook, um, it's actually the largest country by user base uh, for Facebook. But they're not able to operate with the currency do you think it's fair that they'll continue to uh, develop and distribute the digital wallet and they'll just move to uh, helping people um, custody and support other assets, the you know the stocks, bonds, commodities, et cetera, that we talked about? Or do you think that um, there's kind of a, a sequential path here where we have to have the digital currencies as the first asset? And if we can't get over that hurdle of uh, support and adoption, then we won't get to the other things. So indeed, there are some countries that already have expressed a big, like you know, big, like major stop to right to to Libra, and uh, some I think will likely be hot stop. And you know, China will you know, already said that there is no way Libra is going to be there, and that they're going to develop their own national central currency or digital currency. Um, so it's hard to see a future there. Uh, but what I do see though is that countries that say no today might change their minds. I think they they may have more to earn rather than to resist. And um, the, the challenge that Facebook has and Libra has and you know the association has is to educate them, explaining why it's their, in their interest. Because you know once you enable people to transact, once you provide them access to financial freedom and control, and that's the point with crypto, right? You know, the, all this all decentralization thing that people talk about, the whole point of it is so people can have access to financial freedom. You create more economical value. More economical value means um, more wealth for the country, and more wealth for the country means more power for your, you know, in your, in, in more power for the country. So I think if they manage to convince them that this is the opportunity, and they manage to be associated to that uh, development, uh, the, the attitude uh, may change. So some countries might take more time for them to, uh, to get in. Um, I think you know it will start with the U.S. and the attitude of the U.S. is going to, I think, affect a lot the attitude of other countries, probably Europe. Um, and then if U.S. and Europe are in, um, it's going to be maybe easier to convince, um, you know, continents like uh, countries like India. So we would see how that happens. I think it's not going to be an easy playbook and they have like a, a major hurdle in front of them. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of bullish that they will manage to at least convince a bunch of countries to play the role and that this will, it will snowball. Because at some point, what will happen is that Libra will trigger a strong interest for all sorts of currencies, digital assets. Whether well, it's Bitcoin and others, will open the eyes to hundreds of millions of people. And if this is the case, the states will have to choose. They will have to choose if they want to embrace this revolution or if they want to fight it. And I think this is a fight that it will be really hard to win. 
uh, and at least it, it will be hard to be isolated. So obviously, it's you know history has proven that when a trend is happening, you don't want to re- want to serve it. And you know if a state has fought internet and would have said, right, no way for me, there is no internet in my country, they would have left been left in prehistory. So I think the same will happen in in uh, in your know, digital assets. So the best bet for for Libra is to say that well, at some point, digital uh, you know countries will not have the choice; they will have to embrace this revolution. So do they want to do it with us, or do they want to do it without us? That's that's their question, and, uh, and you know that will be the the challenge that they will have to to face. But I think the, the history plays in their sense. Got it. And, and so I guess you know as we go forward, what's the one thing that you think uh, will either happen with digital wallets? Um, that people aren't expecting, or the thing that everyone is expecting that you don't think will happen? Well, the, the big question for me is that are wallets going to be something that are going to be operated by uh, newcomers uh, like us, all right? And, you know, is the future going to be around self-custody? Um, or are we going to be seeing just an extension of what we've seen until now, which are basically banks? And, you know, if you look at the space today, today people leave most of their funds in exchanges, and that's why those acts are so spectacular, because, you know, most of the funds people uh, own are stored in exchanges and custodians. And the reason why is because it's easy. It's easy. It's convenient. It's great to know that you have someone on the other side. So the big question is, is the future going to look like the past or is the future going to look different? Is that going to be a, fu- a future of self-custody where key management is something that is solved and where users can actually take control of their own funds and control everything that they do and have uh, this kind of freedom and independence. Or we will live in a world where people need trusted third party and we back to the beginning in a way. And my hint is that it will take a generation for this attitude to change. It will take a generation because when you look at kids today, when you look at kids, they live in a digital native world. They live in video games. They live in Fortnite. They live in, in places where digital currencies is their world. They want that to be their world. And as they grow to become adults, they will also expect that into their future. So my, maybe our generation is already too late, but I think the new generation will want something else. We want to build something else. And I think it already started the same way AOL started the internet. And suddenly we saw that portals uh, became a thing of the past and then came Google and all sorts of decentralized websites with Web2.0 and the content became distributed in all sorts of, all sorts of ways. I think the same thing is going to happen with, with wallets and digital wallets is that right now we are in a custodian first situation world, uh, kind of bank-like world, because this is the paradigm that we know that we feel comfortable with. But I will change in the, in the future and I'm very confident that with the right solutions, uh, people will want to own and be in control. And finally, the last thing I would ask is whether this is something that's going to be controlled by giants or the Facebook, the Apple, the Google, the Microsoft, the Amazon will be your wallet, or will that be something that will be uh, owned by or operated by newcomers like us, right? And that are coming with new solutions that have built network effects that have you know, unfair disadvantages in the way they build their solutions, and that at some point become too big, in, you know, too big to be ignored. So there's there's also this question. It's really hard to say at this stage. I think it's too early to know. Um, Apple, Google, Amazon, all those guys except Facebook do, did not make, make a move yet into the space. So for now, it doesn't look like they're going to come in immediately. So the room is still empty. Got it. Before I end, I always do rapid fire. You ready? Of course. Most important company in crypto other than your own. Uh, so I would say without hesitation right now, um, if you ask me today, it's Binance. Um, I think they've built the most outstanding operation in the space. And I you know I'm saying something that's pretty obvious. But I think that may change. And uh, I think someone like uh, Facebook, um, because of the impact that they have in terms of distribution, because of the uh, fundamental what expertise they have in building uh, great user experiences and services people use at scale. That may change in a year uh, or two. So for now, I think we are in a Binance uh, kind of winning, uh, winning it all. Um, and the operation is really outstanding. It's really world-class execution, um, what the, those guys are doing. But I think Facebook has a chance to take over in terms of importance, although they will do different things. Got it. Um, what do you think is the one regulation that you would change or improve if you could? 
So um, there's two things I think should, should change immediately. First, uh, the KYC regulations, if people want to buy, um, the KYC should be much clearer and much more standardized, and that can only come by clarity of regulation. Uh, KYC should not happen for low amounts of purchases or for um, you know non-custodial low amounts or even custodial low amounts. So that's something that is absolutely not required. And I don't understand you have to go through the pain of uploading documents and everything if you uh, want to buy just $10, $10 worth of crypto that would facilitate easily the adoption to a much larger number of users. Uh, the other thing I think would be a tremendous improvement is if um, the tax administration was ready to accept a payment of tax in, uh, for, for crypto benefits, crypto profits in crypto. Uh, and I know there is some experiments in Wyoming and others, but they always pick to fiat. And so that, you know, kind of, kind of making the rule not very interesting. I'm talking about native payments in crypto. And that would be so, uh, so game changing uh, and also facilitating the development of the industry. What's your most controversial thought in crypto? Most controversial in crypto, uh, I would say that it's it's tied to what I just said, though it's kind of contrarian, but also goes together, is that very likely the future in crypto will be KYC first, meaning that I know we're all dreaming of this kind of anonymous world where everyone knows every what they, what they own and that they should not reveal each other and that they should like be independent and private. But on the other side, there is there is no rule, there is no society without organization, and KYC be, will be will be mandatory. It's already starting to be the case with the new FAST regulation. I think it will extend at some point to also non-custodial services. Um, you know, Calibra will be KYC first. That said, I think KYC will have a different color than what it has today. It will be user controlled. It will be privacy controlled. It will be decentralized oracles, uh, unified user interfaces. It will be interoperable and not the pain that we're seeing today. So I think we'll have a, a future that is KYC first. And the other thing I would say is that mainstream adoption cannot happen at all without Apple and Google playing the role. Right now, there's a major, major issue in the, in the, in the adoption of crypto, and it's not talked enough about, is that if you are uploading a mobile app, and you know the future is mobile, and if you're building a mobile app with crypto and you want to enable payment in crypto, for any kind of digital asset or service, you cannot do that. Apple will reject your app, Google will reject your app. You cannot sell a digital service with crypto, and uh, there is no way the industry is going to develop if that is not happening. So mainstream um, can only happen, not if we solve scalability, not if we solve a better consensus and security or governance, but only if Apple and Google play the, play the game, and I don't think they do that. What's the most important book you've ever read? I'm not a book big book big book reader. Uh, I read a lot, uh, but I've kind of a very spotty way of picking my books. And uh, the, you know, there's two books that have impacted me, but uh, they're not in the crypto space. Uh, in the same way, I came very late, so I'm not a crypto native guy. Uh, I would say the first one is the Chess Player by Steven Zweig. It's one of my favorite writers. It's an Austrian writer. It's an amazing uh, book about. Uh, about the story of this uh, of this uh, chess player who is basically a genius, and um, but has kind of become forgotten and will be rediscovered on a on a boat by someone play a game with him and realize it's the biggest genius of our time. Uh, the story is interesting, but the reason I like this book so much is that it's because it opened my eyes on what why reading is so such a delightful experience. And after that, I read many many other books, although I don't read anymore today. And the other book that I really like is A Confession of an Advi uh, Advertising Man by uh, David Ogilvy, which is one of the fathers of advertising. And it's one of the most compelling uh, read uh, that I've ever seen on how to, to tell a good story and how to sell a good story. And the story has to always have a meaning. And when you see all the hype that you have around, <laughs> around the world of crypto, it's, uh, you know, you know, it's it's very easy to detect that many of these things are oversold and that are not tied to real meat and real uh, real material. So, you know, having a book like that in my mind has really helped me shape how to tell a story, how to to understand the meaning of a story, and and build something that is meaningful. Aliens, believer, non-believer. <laughs> we talked about it on Twitter, I think once. Uh, I'm I'm a believer. <laughs> I, I'm a believer that they exist, uh, but I'm uh, a low believer that human life form uh, alien exists, and I will explain why. 
for multiple reasons. First, the first filter that you have to ask yourself is whether you, you read the Bible and you are a believer in the Bible, because if this is the case, it's like unlikely that there is any other form of other worlds with human-like intelligence. So that's kind of the first filter. Uh, it's not that extremely religious, but it's already like you know, applying a prison to, to believing in other form of human life uh, in other worlds. Uh, the second feature is, I think, by this time, if there was some other form of human life-like intelligence, somehow we would have found about it, or they would have found us. And I would find like very surprising with, with all the progress of technology, we wouldn't have heard about it. So for me, there's no doubt that it's existing, but um, I, I doubt that we found another pump on Mars or uh, on Venus or another solar system that we have never heard about. Uh, there's only one pump. You really believe that? Uh, wh wh why should I say something that I don't believe in? <laughs> yeah, I do believe that. I do believe. I, I do believe there is only one pump. That's for sure. <laughs> and, uh, have you seen the recent um, interview that uh, Joe Rogan did with uh, Bob Lazar, who? Uh, who worked in uh, like Area Fifty One or Area S Four or whatever on the uh, the um, space uh, aircraft or alien aircraft? I have not. All right, you definitely have to watch it because it is uh, it, it's very uh, compelling, but also uh, it, it's a little scary, right? When you start to really think about if there is life form outside of Earth and we come in contact with it. Um, it may not be good for us, <laughs> right? I think we aspire to uh, to discover it, but, uh, but but it may not necessarily turn out good, um, you know, for us or for them. Uh, and so it, it uh, it's pretty crazy to think about. I, I look at it, but I, but I doubt that he says something about I've met an alien. <laughs> so so I look at it. I mean, of course, I would be, you know, I'm ready to change my mind. I made like you know terrible choices in my life and change my mind two hundred times and sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, but right now, this is really what I believe, and uh, I'm ready to be open to changes in the future. If the future changes. All right. What uh? What one question you have for me to uh, finish this up? So I, you are for me one kind of mystery, right? So I need to understand something. Like, how do you organize your day? Like, you've built a power growth machine that I don't manage to follow, and and I've been involved in many many plays. I've been involved in things that have grown, and you've managed to build in a year or two something that I've never seen before. So tell us, tell us your growth secrets. Like, how do you make that happen, and how do you organize your day? Uh, that's the key. I don't. Um, I, I think that I, uh, I am just incredibly authentic, right? I just, I do exactly what I want to do when I want to do it. Um, if I make a mistake, I immediately say I made a mistake, right? If I say something that was wrong, um, Hey, I was wrong about that. Um, I, uh, am curious when I want to be curious. I'm convicted when I want to be convicted. Um, you can tell when I'm excited and happy and you can probably tell when I'm annoyed or, you know, um, you know, bothered by something. And so it's just this, uh, this belief of, um, most people are trying to craft an image, uh, a story, um, a, uh, persona that isn't true. Right. And, and it may not be a hundred percent true or it might not be 20% true, right? But, but they're trying to craft it in a way where um, they want to be perceived through a certain lens. And so what that does is, uh, for most people, it comes off very crafted, right? It comes off very inauthentic, um, or, or they're very reserved. And I always joke and I say, uh, the reason why something like, you know, my Twitter account, um, or, or uh, the, the different things online uh, go so viral is, there's actually a ton of people who believe exactly what I'm saying. They're just too scared mm -hmm. to say it, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to say it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of that is uh, you have to be really comfortable with yourself, right? Like I, I think the, the problem, um, and this is across society uh, that we've run into, is everyone is always comparing themselves to everyone else. And therefore, we've probably like, if there was a metric of like, how, what is the percentage of self-consciousness that has like, uh, permeated society? It would be off the charts now, right? Mm -hmm. Cause everyone is looking at everyone else and being like, 
oh, they're doing X or they're doing Y, or I don't want to be seen as inferior to them on, you know, this uh, one or two aspects of life. Whereas I think the people that have built these massive audiences, the common thread through all of them is authenticity. They say what they want to say when they want to say it. Uh, They know that there's a percentage of people who are going to disagree, right? And that actually drives even more engagement in a community, right? So if you look at everyone from Naval, Joe Rogan, you know, et cetera, they have plenty of detractors, but the detractors clashing with the supporters actually drives a lot of engagement as well um, and a lot of distribution. But the individual who's creating the content or, or is kind of the, um, you know, the, the provocateur of the community, uh, they're just incredibly authentic. And I think that that is or that has been lost over time um, online. And so one of the things that um, you know, I always tell, uh, especially young people who come to me and say, you know, hey, how do I build uh, a brand or how do I build an audience or um, you know, make a name for myself? I tell them that you have to make a decision. Right. And the decision isn't what are you going to do? It's what are you comfortable with? And, and the comfort isn't about action. It's about the ramifications. Right. And, and I think that um, a long, long time ago, I just knew that I was comfortable being really wrong in public. And once you get comfortable with like the worst case scenario, everything else is easy. Right. And, and so I think that that's been the. Um, kind of the key advantage that I've had. Uh, And so what that looks like in action is I wake up some days, I tweet once or twice, you know, I spend a bunch of time with founders and and evaluating companies and kind of go about my day and you wouldn't know me from Adam. And then other days, you know, I I get up and I tweet 50 times before noon and I record three podcasts and, you know, frankly, I act like a, like a (laughs) madman on the internet. And it's just whatever I want to do today, but, but there's no real plan, um, which I think is, a, is an advantage because it keeps things fresh, right? It keeps people kind of on their toes. Um, and I don't really know another way. So I'm going to keep doing it until uh, one day I'm going to wake up and say, all right, I don't want to do this stuff anymore. I'm going to go do something else. Uh, I, I so agree with what you said. Let, let me ask you a question. Like, How much of the crypto Twitter you think is authentic versus not authentic? Like, what would you be your best guess in terms of percentage? So I, I think that there's, uh, it, it's not a binary world, right? I think that there's like a spectrum. And, and what I mean by that is uh, there's some people who, who are super, super authentic. There's some people who are completely uh, crafted and, and um, kind of uh, manufactured, right? So, so those are the kind of the two extreme ends of the spectrum. In between is where majority of the people are. Right. And so it's you get 80 percent authenticity, 20 percent crafting. Right. Or or 50 50, whatever. What I think is uh, a more interesting way to look at it is not so much just uh, authenticity versus inauthenticity. It's more around what are the topics people are authentic about versus not authentic about. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, the the banks is is a perfect example. Right. Somebody actually uh, I was at dinner last night um, and and somebody who's fairly well known in uh, in kind of finance world. But but uh, just now getting into crypto and Bitcoin said to me, you know, what what's the thing with the banks? Right. And and why hammer them all the time? And what I explained to him was the banks are the perfect example of what is wrong in the world of money, elite status, et cetera, right? They will do things where they are financially incentivized to actually break the rules because it makes them money, right? So if they do something illegal, they get fined. They never get fined more money than they made on doing the illegal thing, for example, right? Or their incentives with their users and customers are usually a binary outcome. If the bank wins, the customer loses, right? And so what ends up happening is there's this underlying um, distrust and unhappiness with a sector. And we see this in um, surveys you know, around what, what are the most trusted brands and least trusted brands, et cetera. And so one day I just said, look, I'm going to call this stuff out, right? I'm going to just say Show the, the truth. <laughs> and part of what I think, 
Yeah, well, it's short the bankers in that because there's two pieces to short the bankers, right? So, so uh, and and, I, and look, part of this is like I have no problem telling people my logic behind this stuff because again, I just think it's the truth. There's not a banker on the planet who thinks they're a banker, right? So the best part about this is bankers come up to me all the time, people who work at J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, etc., and they're like, "Man, I love when you say long Bitcoin short the bankers. Like the bankers <laughs> suck." And I'm looking at, it, I'm like, "You're a banker." Sure. And, and it's not that sure. it's not them, right? So like that's the beauty of something like the bankers. It's this faceless kind of um, clinical term that uh, nobody thinks they're associated with it, and everyone, you know, quote unquote, dislikes the banks or hates the bankers, right? And so it, it, it's a very um, kind of polarizing or rallying uh, message. Yes. But ultimately, what short the bankers means is it's not the people, right? It's the it's what the actions of those people drive, right? So it's the income inequality. It's that binary outcome where banks win and people lose. It is the uh, belief that um, somehow central banks, governments, you know, banks themselves are engaging in activities that manipulate currencies and markets and economies yes. in a way that actually hurts people yep. or widens the income inequality gap. All this stuff we all know this, right? All you got to do is have an internet connection and you can figure all this stuff out. It's just that mm -hmm. people don't like to talk about it because they feel like uh, they're put at a disadvantage, right? And historically, that's probably been true because what was the other option, right? If you Metris. wanted to opt out of the legacy <laughs> financial system, <Metris. laughs> what was the option? There really wasn't one, right? What were you going to do? Go buy gold bars and put them in your yes. closet, right? Like just, there, there wasn't really like a viable option. Now there is. right? And, and so I think that's where you're seeing um, a lot of people who are considered to have, you know, big voices in the, in the uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency community. They are pretty mm -hmm. straightforward, uh, open and honest about the challenges that the legacy financial right. system has. Many people within the legacy financial system also believe those things to be true, right? We, we see it all the time where You'll get a central banker who says something about the the uh, kind of for-profit financial system, and they're saying the same thing we're saying. It's just that they've never seen what's the viable alternative. And so once you introduce that viable alternative, now people get, uh, I think, more confidence to say what they believe because they have a way to vote with their wealth to go somewhere else. Right. And I think that's what you're really seeing in, in Bitcoin and crypto is people are not only now becoming more vocal about those challenges, but they're also voting with their wealth. And they're saying, I'm actually going to take my money, the, the value that I've earned in my life, and I'm going to go put it somewhere else that is outside of this system because I believe that this system is flawed. That's a big. I so agree. Yeah. I, I so agree. And it connects to the future being self custody. And you know, trust, honesty is the keyword of, of what you just described here. And I think this is something that is dr the driving force of that, of that revolution. It's not the, the, the seek of wealth, absolute wealth. It's just a redistribution of the rules of honesty and trust. I, I, I completely agree. And look, here, here's the best part, right? And, and uh, especially when I'm talking to institutional investors, I tell them all this time, all the time this. I say, I have an incredibly high degree of conviction around what we're doing. But I am not confused that we could be wrong. But I believe that the risk we are taking, we are being adequately compensated for by the potential return on whether we are right or not. And I think that's the key piece, right? When you look at it from a risk return standpoint, if you have conviction in what we're doing, the reward drastically outweighs the risk. Right. And so that's something that I get excited about. And so it's not just one aspect of life, right? It can't just be, oh, I make financial decisions uh, by, you know, investing in other people's capital or my own capital, but I don't actually believe this stuff. I think that's a really, really dangerous place to, to kind of gravitate towards. And so for, you know, me and my partners, I, I think we've really kind of wrapped our heads around, um, you know, kind of a 360 degree view of this thing. And we have that conviction. We know we could be wrong, but if we are right, that reward will drastically out, uh, outweigh the risk. Clap, clap. <laughs> Completely agree. So, 
Look, man, you, you'll, uh, you, you'll get me too excited if you ask me questions like that. I see. Like, I, I feel the vibes and energy through my Tel Aviv office here. It's like uh, shaking all around. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to do this. I, I think that people uh, are really going to enjoy hearing you know, your views kind of from the ground, building uh, one of the leading digital wallets and kind of um, taking some nuanced approaches to key management and things. And then, and then how that interacts with not only the, the larger uh, Bitcoin and crypto ecosystem, but also uh, things like uh, Calibra, Libra, Facebook, etc. So thank you so much for, uh, for the time and I hope people enjoy listening to this. Thank you so much. I have to also thank you because thanks to your podcast, I learned a lot of things that I know about in crypto. And, uh, you know, if people have the time, they can connect uh, to me very, very easily, uh, very easy to find on Google. Uh, Zengo.com is the URL to find us. Uh, if you come to Tel Aviv, say hello. And uh, thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.